Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. So let's dive right into the beginning of the book of of 1 Peter. Oftentimes the question that we ask is, well, who wrote the book? Well, it tells us right there at the very opening line. Lots of times when we're writing a letter, uh, we sign it at the end. But in this particular time, it's at the very beginning. And, And Peter identifies himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we know a lot about this guy. Uh, there's more written about Peter in the Gospels than any other person other than, than Jesus. So we know the good, the bad, the ugly, and even some of the dark side. Now, when I was in high school, I didn't have a great appreciation for English literature. And I apologize for those who are English literature uh, teachers and professors. I've grown to have a, a greater appreciation. But one of the reasons I, I didn't have this great appreciation is because I didn't really understand Old English very well. So every time we had to read something from Shakespeare, I was like, ugh. But there are a few lines that have s- stood out to me over the years. Of course, if you ever um, read the, the play Hamlet, one of the lines that st- uh, stand out is, to be or not to be? That is the question. Uh, in one of Shakespeare's plays, Julius Caesar, uh, in scene three, uh, act three, scene two, uh, Julius is giving out one of his famous speeches, and he says this memorable line. He says, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones. Now, the older I get, the more I understand the truth of that statement. What it's saying is oftentimes when we die, people remember the bad things that we did, but the good things, well, they just get buried uh, with our bones. And, and let me give you an example. When I say the name Jonah, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It's a man who got swallowed by a whale. Why? Because he was running from God, because it was a certain group of people that he really hated. We don't first think that Jonah was part of the greatest evangelistic event in all of human history. Because when he finally did go to Nineveh and preach about repenting of their sins and turning to God, the Bible says the entire city repented of their sins and turned to God. And historians say there's probably about 500,000 people that lived there at that time. So under Jonah's ministry, a half a million people came to know who God was. But that's not what we remember. Uh, What about Samson? When I say Samson, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Oh, some lustful, sex-addicted womanizer. And yet the Bible says he judged um, Israel for 20 years, and he's listed in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. He's considered a great man of faith. But that's not what we first think of when we think of Samson. Or even uh, King David. Oftentimes, the first thing we think of is that adulterous relationship that he had with Bathsheba, where he got a woman pregnant, a married woman pregnant, and then had to murder her husband to try to cover it all up. We don't first think that, oh, he was a man who had a heart for God. Well, think of Peter, the exact same thing. When you think of Peter, the first thing that often comes to mind, oh, some uneducated fisherman who was opinionated, uh, a chameleon, uh, a denier of Jesus at times, uh, uh, had anger issues. We don't first think that he's a mover and a shaker of the early church or that he helped form and shape the New Testament church. In fact, tradition tells us that when he was sentenced to death, he was sentenced to be crucified, and he asked if he could be crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy to die the same way that Jesus did. So, you know, the truth is, 
We all have chapters in our life where we wish we could erase. All of us, not most of us, all of us have moments in our life that were not our finest moment. However, it is in those painful moments, in those disappointments, in those failures that we grow in life. In fact, it prevents us from being a little too proud. They cause us to have some depth in our life. And I like what Chuck Swindoll says. He says, give people room to grow in the dark times of their life. Let me say that one more time. Give people room to grow in the dark times of their lives. Let's give them grace to finish the chapter that they're living. What great advice that is. So I'm really glad that Peter wasn't written off in those early years, or we would never have this book of 1 Peter or the book 2 Peter. 1 Peter is a book about uh, pain and is written by a man who understood pain. So we know who wrote the book. Let's get a little bit of uh, context of what's happening in this particular period. Most scholars say the book was written around 63, 64, maybe even 65 uh, AD. And you know who the Roman emperor was at the time? It was Nero. If you're a junior higher or older, you've heard that name before. And Nero was, he was evil, he was corrupt, and he was a twisted individual. He killed his first uh, wife, he killed his mother. There's lots of evidence that he even killed his second wife. And he's the one that historians credit to as the one who burnt down the city of Rome. Nero had this insatiable appetite, desire, lust, to build buildings in Rome. And, and one of the reasons, because emperors wanted to build these uh, majestic buildings so they would be remembered, it was part of their legacy. However, the Roman Senate wouldn't allow Nero to do it. They said it was going to cost too much money, and they said no. So how do you get around that? Hey, you burn down your own city, so you have to build again. And in July of 64... The big fire broke out in Rome, and for three days, it burned uncontrollably. Finally, after six days, they were able to get the fire out, only for it to be reignited again for another three days. It completely destroyed three of the 14 districts of Rome, the city of Rome, and, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were killed in the fire, and thousands upon thousands were left homeless. And it didn't take long before fingers were being pointed to Nero, that he was the one actually who was guilty of burning down the city of Rome. So he had to quickly come up with an idea. I know what he did. He decided to uh, blame a small group of people who were followers of Jesus, uh, Christians. And that's when the persecution began to be brutal for Christians. So that's the time frame uh, when this book was written. And, and you think to yourself, because I've often thought, why would people be so quick to believe that Christians were the one who burnt down the city of Rome? Maybe there's a few reasons, but one possibility is that Christians were often connected with Jews. And, of course, anti-Semitism is always in style. It's always in vogue, and so possibly there. There were also rumors about a secret meeting that Christians were having uh, called the Lord's Supper. We just... Uh, shared that together uh, a few moments ago earlier in our service. But there was these rumors going around that Christians were eating the body and blood of somebody. And those rumors began to expand to where finally they were being accused of being cannibals. And then the slander really began to build because they, th they said the Christians were stealing uh, Gentile babies and doing the same thing uh, with those uh, babies. 
You know, another reason may be is that Christians were often heard talking about that the world would come to an end by, by fire. And so, hey, that's what the Christians did. They began to destroy the world by setting Rome on fire. Now, just to give you a little idea how sick uh, Nero was, he used to take Christians and dip them in hot wax and hang them from the trees by their hand. And at nighttime, he would light them on fire to light up his garden parties. That's how unstable this man was. Now, remember, these people that were, were set on fire, these are real people, people who had families, people just like you and me. Well, that's the context of this book of Peter that we're going to be studying. And the book is really designed for those who are hurting right now, those who have no answers to their questions, those who are enduring difficult times right now. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. Uh, maybe your children aren't going in the direction that you had hoped and prayed for. Maybe it's mental health. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a loss of your job. Maybe you're just going through something really difficult right now, and you're just trying to figure it out. What do I do? Well, this book is designed especially for you, those who are going through a difficult time right now, and those who will be going through a difficult time. Well, let's see specifically who the, the book is written to. Right there, it says it, to God's elect. This just simply means God chose us. In fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, verse 16, you did not choose me. I chose you. If you were to read Romans chapter 9, you discover there that before you ever made a good decision, before you ever made a, a bad decision, before you made any decision, God chose you. And I don't fully understand it, but that's what the Bible teaches. In other words, no matter how much good stuff you do, it's God doing something through you. Now, in 1 Peter, the, the elector also referred to, well, let's read it right there. They're also referred to as exiles. Uh, exiles can be translated strangers, you know, in this world, or foreigners, or sojourners, or aliens. I've often wondered, why did, Paul, or why did Peter call them exiles? Why foreigners? Why strangers? And, and the more I got thinking about that, I, I really think Paul was doing that to remind Christians that this is your temporary home. Your home's not here. Your home is in heaven. Uh, there's a song that was on the radio about, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. It was quite popular, and it was called Temporary Home. I, I love the chorus. It says, this is my temporary home. It's not where I belong. Windows in the rooms that I'm just passing through. This was just a stop on the way to where I'm going. I'm not afraid because I know this was my temporary home. So the question is, if I do not treat this world like home, how will that impact me? I think it changes everything. Because as a follower of Jesus, you don't feel like you fit everywhere. Sometimes things just don't feel right. If you ever travel internationally, things don't ever feel the same. Uh, you know, it doesn't feel like home. Maybe it's a language barrier. Maybe it's a cultural barrier. But it's, it's just not how you're used to living. Priorities are often different in different cultures. And so I, you get thinking about that, you, you just don't feel like you're at home. Well, I think that's what Peter's trying to tell us here, too. This is not home. In fact, Paul talks about it, too. Philippians 3.20, it says, our citizenship is in heaven, which is interesting. Like, we've never been there. 
yet that's where our citizenship is. You know, I think one of the reasons we suffer here on earth as followers of Jesus is so that we'll have a longing for home. If you never suffer, you'll never long for home. One of the things uh, that we're going to learn in this book of 1 Peter is that suffering increases your longing for home. Uh, on one of my mission trips uh, to the country of Haiti, this reality really hit home to me in a very powerful way. Now, now remember, Haiti is one of the, the poorest country in the world, uh, maybe the poorest country, actually, in the world. And, and we had gathered on a Sunday morning at a Haitian church. There's about 200 Haitians there. And um, after the service, I, I had talked to the pastor and I said, ah, I was really surprised that you uh, took up an offering. I know people are so poor here. I said, just out of curiosity, of 200 people, how much money would come in on an offering? He said to me, 32 cents came in this morning. And he says, I really think people gave sacrificially. I was like, wow. And then I had a follow-up question. I, I, I said to them, what makes these people so happy? They sing with a vibrancy that I've never seen in church before. They have a smile like they won the, won the million-dollar lottery. And yet they're surrounded uh, by sickness and disease and government corruption and lack of health facility and lack of food and lack of jobs and lack of clean water. Why are they so happy? They have nothing. He looked me right in the eyes and he said, Donald, and I quote, he says, because they know this is their temporary home. They know that the home that awaits for them is really where the happiness and joy will be. Suffering really does create a longing for home. Now, we, we know uh, Peter is, is writing to the elect. We know that they're called the exiles. And in fact, we have the location, the address of where they are. It says, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There they are. Where is that? Well, if you look at the map there, uh, it's actually modern-day uh, Turkey. And the New Testament is often referred to as Asia Minor. Uh, on one side, you see a little bit of Greece. You go down a little bit uh, from where you see the cities uh, listed that I just mentioned. is kind of Iraq and Iran. And you go down a little bit further on the map, and that's where the Middle East is. And so Peter is writing to this group of people, the elect, the exiles. Now, scholars say Peter never visited there. So why is Peter writing a book uh, or a letter to people he's never, ever met. Doesn't seem strange. Usually you write a letter to people you know. Well, perhaps it's in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 5 through 11, that we actually discover perhaps maybe how Peter has a relationship um, with these people that live in those areas of the world. In Acts chapter 2, Verse 5 says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, uh, Asia, and the list just goes on and on. 
So it seems as in Acts chapter 2, which is the birth of the church, for some of you may remember, people started speaking in tongues and in a language they, they had never learned or studied, but people could hear in their own language. And when this was happening, Peter gets up and he starts preaching about the resurrected Christ, the one who was crucified, the one who was buried, and who was rose again. And you read later in this chapter of Acts chapter 2, you discover, they say, well, what, what should we do? What should we do? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have a picture right here of where Peter uh, probably was preaching that message. This is the southern wall of, of the Temple Mount. And way over there on the right side of the picture, you'll see that's what they call the pinnacle. That's where Jesus actually was being tempted by uh, the devil to kind of throw himself off the edge. It's kind of the, the, the biggest difference in height as far as the top to where the ground is. And then right there, you'll see the steps. These are the steps that led into uh, the temple area. And this is where they think Peter proclaimed. And it says that 3,000 people accepted Jesus as their personal Savior and were baptized. Right below these steps, actually, if you go to Israel today, you can see some of these ruins. They were like um, baptistries, all kinds of them, where people did ceremonial cleansing before they went actually into the temple. And so right there on those steps is where Peter proclaimed. And I think that's why he's writing to these people. He met some of these people uh, on that day in Acts uh, chapter uh, 2. So let's remember, Peter's writing a book to a group of people who are really hurting right now. They're suffering. They're experiencing pain uh, and disappointment. And if you're going to live your uh, life as a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, tough times are going to come because we're going to always be viewed as outsiders. And then 1 Peter 1 verse 6 says something that kind of shocks me and it's probably going to shock you too. He says, in all this, Rejoice. What? Like in all, and what? In your suffering. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These has come so that the proven, so that can prove the genuineness of your faith. So first thing Peter says, rejoice about it. Like, no, Peter, that, that, that's crazy talk. But then he says, here's the purpose. Sometimes why we suffer is to show that your faith is genuine. So if there's a genuine faith, it kind of lends the idea that there probably is a fake faith. And honestly, that has concerned me almost my entire ministry. When I think of people in churches, do they have a genuine faith or is it a fake faith? I hope you're paying attention um, this morning because in our Western culture, it's easy to follow Jesus. I follow Jesus. It's just, it's part of my life. Not all of my life. It's part of my life. I have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of Jesus. And I often wonder, is it really a genuine faith that people are holding on to? Because I really think there are lots of people who call themselves Christians who are not Christians. It's a fake faith. Now, I don't like to be a, a preacher of doom, but some people just have what we often refer to as an inherited faith. You know, my parents went to church, my grandparents went to church, we were there every, you know, Easter and Christmas, like we were faithful. You know, even a few of the other special holidays and, you know, I, um, so I'm a Christian, I, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Muslim, so uh, obviously, you know, I'm a Christian and 
an inherited faith. And I think, I think that's one of the reasons that we see many college students walk away from what they claim to have believed because their faith was just inherited. It never was their own. I, I think maybe another fake faith is a faith that is shallow. In fact, Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 13. Their roots never really go deep. And that's why sometimes after six months or a year, you don't see people around anymore because they got trapped in fear or maybe some addiction. And there was really never any spiritual power uh, for their life to have victory. And I've seen that over and over and over again. Uh, some have a conditional faith. You know, I'll follow God as long as everything's going okay in my life. Conditional, like... I went through a, a divorce. I prayed God would save my marriage, and he didn't, so I'm done. Or I, I had a sick child, and I prayed that God would heal him, and he didn't, so I just cut the strings of the relationship with him. It's, it's all based on condition. Let me just say, a faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. A faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. And Peter had a faith that was tested. He even failed, actually, a little. But then he would regroup, get strengthened, be made new, and then completely transform. 1 Peter 5, 8 may tell us, uh, give us a little bit of hint why we have some problems in our life, why we suffer a little bit. It says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be alert, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone that he can devour. So as we make our way through this book, we're just kind of scratching the surface, more like an intro uh, this morning, but as we are going, making our way through this book, I hope that we'll be able to answer the question, how do you live in a world where you are a temporary resident? And how do you live in a world where we're told that we will suffer? Which means we're going to have to learn how to suffer. I, I, not something really I want to do. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor in Seattle, Washington. He made this statement. He says, too many Christians have zero tolerance for suffering. Peter has a lot to teach us in this book, and we're just scratching the surface. So I hope you'll join us next week as we jump into the deep end of this book. I think we're going to be transformed by its truths. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com. There's no-